Good morning again. All right, a couple good mornings. There we go. We got one. <laughs> you can turn in your copy of the Bible to Mark 15, starting in verse 16. We only got two of these left. We got this one and then two more, and then that's a wrap on Mark. It's hard to believe. Listen as I read uh, Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 16. If you don't have a Bible, Bible's over on the table. Feel free to take one. Verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, They put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Let me pray for us one more time. Lord, as we come now to the center, to the crucifixion itself, as we stand now at the foot of the cross and see our Savior humiliated and mocked and beaten and crucified, We pray that you would show us again the absolute sufficiency of our Savior to rescue us from all sin and all shame. Lord, we know our weakness. We are utterly exposed before you. You see us down to the depths. And Lord, you know what we need most is to see again the worth and glory and beauty and sufficiency of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to rescue us from every sin and out of every shame. So Lord, would you do that now in the hearts of these brothers and sisters? Feed them, nourish them, strengthen them, build them up, encourage them in Christ, in his work. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's a universal human feeling. It's the feeling you get when you walk into a room and it seems like everyone is is looking at you crooked like you don't belong. Or the feeling that begins to surge through your veins when Your boss lets you go because your job performance isn't good enough. 
or the feeling that results from losing your temper with the kids in the grocery store and then overhearing some people criticizing your parenting. Or it's the feeling of getting caught by your spouse watching something you should not be watching. Your hands get sweaty. Your face becomes flush. You feel like the spotlight has been shined on all your faults and you wish you could just crawl into a hole and hide. There may be anger, there may be hurt, there may be fear, but underneath all of that is something else. Shame. Shame. To some degree, you you all know what it's like to experience shame. When was the last time you felt shame? Maybe it's because of something you did or because of something that was done to you. When was the last time you felt ashamed? Can I just tell you something right now? Jesus knows what it's like to feel shame. Amen? Jesus knows what it is to experience shame. I I changed the title of this sermon to The Shame of the Cross. Because that's what this passage is all about. The shame of the cross. From top to bottom, Mark records this relentless barrage of insults and abuse aimed at Jesus that is meant to belittle him, dehumanize him, humiliate him, demean him. There is no more shameful experience than what Jesus endured in his suffering and in his death. In fact, I would argue that you can't fully understand Jesus' crucifixion unless you understand the shame of it. The shame of it. One author put it this way. He wrote, the Bible, it turns out, is all about shame and its remedy. Does that sound right to you? Does that sound too extreme? The Bible is all about shame. That's a big statement. The Bible is all about shame and its remedy. Well, consider the fact that this morning we have arrived at the actual crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 24 says, and they crucified him. And here at this moment, the climactic moment of Jesus' earthly ministry, the moment that all of his ministry has been steadily moving towards his crucifixion, what we find and what Mark describes is Jesus absolutely drenched covered and drowning in shame. Here at the the center, the epicenter of the Christian faith, the crucifixion, what we get is a picture of Jesus covered in shame. You see, here's what I want you to see this morning. I want you to see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, mocked and insulted, and beaten, and ultimately crucified because he is bearing the weight of all of your shame so he could take it away. I I want you, listen, I want you to hear God in Christ saying to you, you are absolutely accepted and beloved and welcomed and received and delighted in and approved of. Your shame is gone. I want you to hear God in Christ saying to you, you belong. Everywhere you go, you belong. Because God belongs everywhere and you belong to him. No shame. Shame removed because of Christ. So three headings I want to look at this passage under. I want you to see shame defined and described. That's the first thing. Then I want you to see shame despised. And then I want you to see shame defeated. Shame defined and described. Shame despised. And then shame defeated. 
So before we jump into our text, we need to do a little work on actually defining shame. And, and shame can be one of those feelings that's hard to define. It's like one of those things where you know it when you feel it, but it's hard to sort of put your finger on it. But let me try and help you define it. So here are two definitions I came across that I think are helpful. And then I'm going to give you my definition. So two, two definitions. Here, here's one. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Do you identify with that? Can you relate to that feeling? Here's another one. Shame is when you are disgraced because you acted less than human, were treated less than human, or were associated with something less than human, and there were witnesses. All right, here's my definition. Shame is the feeling that results from being exposed, judged, and rejected. Shame is the feeling that results from being exposed, judged, and rejected. I'm going to show you that in the scriptures in just a moment, but just consider a a really easy example of this, probably one that that you, you, you can all sort of grab onto. Picture the little boy who isn't like super athletic and gets picked last for the, the game, for the team. Picture him standing there among the last three kids to get picked and the one on his left gets picked and then the one on the right gets picked and then he's standing there all alone and ashamed. Why is he ashamed? First, it's because he's exposed. Because everyone can see that he's the last one. There's, there's nowhere to hide, and as much as he wishes he could just disappear, he can't. Everyone sees that he's the last one. Then second, he's been judged. He's standing there alone because a verdict has been reached. He's no good. He's not going to be an asset to the team. He's going to be a burden. And notice that he doesn't experience the shame as just a criticism of his athletic ability or lack thereof, but he experiences it as a criticism of himself that he himself is unworthy, that he himself is no good. And finally, he's rejected, right? As he puts his head down and sort of shuffles over to his team, he hears the other team giggling and laughing, and then his other team sighing, like they have to have have him, he's going to be a burden, and they're like, you know, all right, I guess. It's absolute rejection. Where these three realities are present, exposure, judgment, and rejection, what you will feel is a deep sense of shame. Are you tracking with me? Can you relate to what I'm talking about? Now remember, I just told you that the Bible is all about shame and its remedy. And if if that sounds like too bold a theological statement, come all the way back with me to Genesis. All the way back to Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, God's creation of man and the fall of man. And and look at what we see. Genesis 2 gives us a, a detailed description of God's creation, his communion and commission to mankind in the garden. And here's how we summarize. So you know Genesis 2, God creates man and there's blessing upon blessing upon blessing. He creates Eve for Adam. And look, here's how he ties a bow on the whole thing. Here's how he summarizes the whole thing. You know what the last verse in Genesis 2 is? The last verse we read before the introduction of sin in the fall, this is, how, this is what he says. Genesis 2, 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were both naked and not ashamed. There was no shame. Only the abiding internal sense of God's joyful approval unqualified acceptance, unbridled delight in them as his created image bearers? Zero doubt about how God felt about them. Isn't that so much of your struggle that you constantly doubt God's disposition towards you? But in the garden, in God's creation, there's no shame, no doubt. And because they felt no shame before God, they felt no shame before each other. Right? No nagging sense of insecure, insecurity, no, no self-consciousness, no inferiority complex. They, they were free to, to love and enjoy one another without the slightest fear of, of criticism or rejection. 
But watch what happens. As soon as sin enters into the picture, the serpent comes and, and tempts Eve with the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. She takes the fruit, she gives it to her husband, they both eat it. And then look what happens immediately in verse seven. It says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Do you see? The very first effect of sin is the introduction of shame into the heart of man. Do you see that? The first, the first feeling, they, their eyes were opened and they saw that they, Genesis 2, naked and unashamed. And then their eyes were open that they were naked. And guess what they feel now? Shame. Shame. Shame before God. Shame before one another. And, and look, those three components that I mentioned, they're all present here in Genesis 3. Exposure, judgment, rejection. Look at them all. In the instant they sin against God, they are exposed totally vulnerable and open. The text says their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked. Now look, don't make this weird, okay? What's being said? At the moment they sin, they become inescapably aware of the fact that something is fundamentally wrong with them. You see? They were stained, unclean, unfit. They covered themselves in fig leaves to try and cover over their newfound shame. And as you go on in Genesis 3, what do you find happens? Adam and Eve are judged, right? They are exposed, naked, trying to hide themselves. They, they feel exposed. But then verse 17, they're judged. In verse 17, a guilty verdict is rendered and they are cursed by God for their sin. And then finally in verse 23, they are rejected by God and sent out of the garden, right? Removed from the garden. And listen, here's what Genesis, Genesis 3 tells us. Right? You see this picture of shame unfolding in the, in the very first chapters of human history? Here's what Genesis 3 is telling us. It's telling us the shame we feel, the shame you feel, it all traces back to the reality we know but try to suppress, and that is that we have sinned against God. That things are not right between us and our maker that we know we are totally exposed before him, that we are under his judgment, and that what we deserve is to be eternally rejected and cast out. At the very core of our being, we know that the author of Hebrews is right when he says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Do you hear it there? Right? Exposure judgment, and the consequence of that judgment, rejection, being cast out. You're all naked and exposed before him, before whom you must give account. And when that account comes due, you will be cast out and rejected because of your sin. But look, here's how, here's how twisted the enemy is. You ready? I know that all of you can, can look back on bad things, on, on sins that you have committed, that when you bring them to mind, you feel shame rising to the surface. For many of us, it's, it's difficult to, to relive those moments in our minds or to say those things out loud because of the shame that it brings up. But for many of you, you, you carry around a weight and a burden of shame, not only because of what you have done, but because of what others have done to you. You, you were physically or, or sexually abused by someone. You were so verbally abused that you began to believe the awful things that someone or multiple people were saying to you and about you. you you've been objectified and humiliated by one or more people. You, you grew up with angry and unpredictable parents who used their authority in your life to speak demeaning words and to make you feel small. Or, or maybe you grew up with parents who were, who were absent or were so consumed with their, with their own lives that you were treated like a burden or an inconvenience. Or maybe you were bullied. You were told that you look weird, you sound weird, you think weird, you are weird. 
in some way you are made to feel defenseless and exposed, unsafe and vulnerable. And what you internalized was judgment, a belief that you are worthless, unvaluable, unimportant because of the rejection you experience. You live in, in constant fear of being rejected and abandoned and deserted by God and by others. Look, because of both sins that we have committed and sins that have been committed against us, we live constantly trying to fight back this deep sense of shame. It's, listen, it's why you're constantly trying to prove yourself. Do you, do you know how much of your life you live trying to prove yourself? It's, it's why you're afraid to disappoint people. It's why you're petrified to disappoint, to have to say no to someone or to, un, or to not meet someone's expectations of you. It's why you battle lingering doubts about whether or not you're a Christian to begin with. It's why you're afraid of people seeing your weakness. It's why you're obsessed with losing weight or looking a certain way. You are constantly clamoring to make yourself acceptable to the people around you and to make yourself acceptable to God so that you can push down the feelings of shame, that, that lingering sense of, I don't belong after all. But no matter what you do, that shame, those doubts, that fear of rejection, it never really goes away, does it? Our, our shame is a regular reminder that things are not as they should be. God made his image bearers to be naked and unashamed, to, to live in the complete, the complete confidence of his love and his acceptance. But because of sin, we live our lives weighed down by this unyielding burden of shame and guilt. But you'll remember I said the Bible is all about shame and its remedy, right? The Bible doesn't just leave us here. Where do we find that remedy? We find it in Jesus. Listen, listen to how the author of Hebrews describes him. He is, Hebrews 12, 2, he is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So I've tried to, Describe and define shame, but now I want you to see in Jesus Christ shame absolutely despised. Uh, I know it's taken a minute for us to get to the text here, but in order for you to see what's, what's happening here in Mark 15, you have to know something about how the Bible talks about shame. And you have to know that, that central to the saving work of Jesus Christ is what the author of Hebrews summarizes as Jesus despising the shame. It's a, it's a hard phrase to interpret, actually. And, and a lot of commentators, uh, they don't quite pass over it, but they don't say a ton on it either. In the original language, the word literally means to set your mind against. Or Jesus set his mind against the shame. And, and really, there are two concepts that come together in this word despise that we find in the Greek. Two ideas that are sort of like two pieces to the puzzle. The first, of the, con the first is the concept to disregard. So I'm sort of taking apart for you what's sort of in the word despise. What are we, what, key to understanding what it means that Jesus despised the shame. Is this word despised? What does it mean? There's sort of like two component parts. The one component part, the first component part is that he disregarded it. That's, that's a component part of despised. He disregarded it. That's actually how the New Living Translation translates the word. It says he endured the cross disregarding its shame. To disregard something is to, to ignore it or to show indifference. In other words, Jesus regarded the shame of the cross as something so small, something so insignificant compared with the joy that was ahead of him that he was willing to endure all of it. And that's exactly what we see here in this passage, isn't it? We see Jesus willingly embracing every insult, every uh, mocking comment, every, uh, you know, the spit on him, every strike, every beating, every indignity. Uh, Philippians 2.8 says, Jesus 
humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a uh, uh, to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know why that word even is there? Right? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know what that word even tells you? It's there to remind you how humiliating and shameful death on a cross actually was. Right? He he didn't submit himself to like a noble or distinguished or revered, honorable kind of death. No, he submitted himself to death, even death on a cross. You hear it? Humiliation to the shit. Listen, the, to die on a cross, what, it's the most shameful, humiliating kind of death that humans have invented. He submitted himself not to some dignified kind of death, but to a shameful death on a cross. And listen, what we see in this passage, what we see here in Mark, in these 17 verses, what we see is Jesus exposed, judged, and rejected. Watch. First, he was exposed. Verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. Mark intentionally includes this detail that the soldiers call together the whole battalion. Why does he do that? Why does Mark include this, this, this little detail that the whole battalion is called together? Is it because Jesus is such a menace? Like he's, he's such a threat that they need the entire battalion to subdue him? I don't think so. Do you know why they call the whole battalion together? To be amused by Jesus. They call the whole battalion together to be like, look, we're gonna, we're gonna just like absolutely, meet. that's what the word mock means, by the way. It means to make sport of. He's going to be a spectacle. They're going to make a spectacle of Jesus. Come, come on, guys. You've got to see this. Utter humiliation. They gathered them together to laugh at him, to be amused, to be entertained by his suffering. And what follows is this barrage of teasing and insults meant to do one thing, to humiliate Jesus. They, they put a purple cloak on his battered body and pressed down a crown of thorns down onto the brow of the one who was called the, the king of the Jews, right? They, you, they salute him in a sarcastic, mocking way. They strike him. They spit on him. They sarcastically kneel down before him and snicker as they hail him, the king of the Jews. And all this to the effect that they would say with their words and their actions. Look, this is the, this is the summary of what's trying to do. If, if you were here, here watching this, you would understand that what they're trying to do with their actions and their words is to say this, you're no king at all. You're not the Christ. You're a phony. You're a failure. You're worthless. You're a loser. You're a deadbeat. You're a nobody. They are trying to absolutely diminish and dehumanize and degrade Jesus Christ. He's brutalized. He's left utterly exposed by their denigrating treatment But then to drive home this idea further, Mark tells us that they stripped him naked. See that idea of he's utterly exposed. They stripped him naked. So first they take the purple cloak off and they put his clothes back on him. But then we learn later on that they took even those clothes off. Even the clothes that they put back on, they take off. How do I know that? Because when they crucify him, they're divvying up his garments. They're dividing them up amongst themselves. He's absolutely exposed. He's been not only mentally, physically, emotionally, psychologically exposed, but now he's physically exposed. See, he's exposed. He's judged. To to see that, we don't really have to go any further than the fact that crucifixion was reserved for criminals. The worst criminals, actually. He's been accused and declared guilty by the Sanhedrin, and now he's condemned a criminal by Rome in verse 27. We read that he was strung up on the cross between two robbers, right? He's associated which, with that which is shameful. To be crucified was to be seen by all as a lawbreaker of the worst kind, a transgressor, a criminal, someone of such heinous evil that the only appropriate recourse was the most humiliating kind of execution. And that's what's happening to Jesus here. But it's not ultimately the judgment of the Sanhedrin or the Romans that is at the center of his suffering and humiliation and shame. 
It's that on the cross, he sits under the judgment of God, right? All of the weight and the shame for your sin is put on his shoulders. All the guilt that rightly belongs to you, all of the ways that your sin and even the sin of others has worked in you this this stain of unrighteousness. All of that judgment is placed on his shoulders. Listen, have you ever watched a TV show where there's like a courtroom involved, like a law and order kind of show? And at the end of the the, the trial, there's always this definitive moment where the judge... uh, essentially says in the, um, they, they read the charges, right? The, the, it's, it's time to announce the, the verdict and, the, and you know, the jury reaches his verdict and then the judge says, that reads all of the charges. In, uh, on the charge of blank, uh, the defendant is found guilty, right? That's, that's what's happening on the cross. Do you realize that? It's, it's as if God is reading out every sin that you've ever committed, It's as if God is reading out on the cross every sin that you've ever committed. Past, present, future, and then looks at his son and says, guilty. You see? He's exposed. He's he's judged. And he's rejected. Right? The consequence of both Jesus' humiliating exposure and judgment is complete, utter, and abject rejection. First see how he is totally rejected by the very people he came into the world to save. Everyone in this passage that's given a choice, and I put that word given a choice or that phrase given a choice to account for uh, Simon of Cyrene, and I'll talk about him in a moment. But everyone in the passage that's given a choice mocks him. There is not only this relentless barrage of insult and beating and striking and crucifixion, Mark is relentless in showing us that it's absolutely everyone. First, it's the Roman soldiers, the entire battalion. Then it's the passers-by, right? The passers-by, they wag their heads at him. Then it's the chief, uh, the chief priests and the elders, and they are, they're mocking Jesus to one another. And then how does the, what's the last verse? You know what the last verse is? Even the thieves, even the robbers on the cross are making fun of him. There's no part of this where Jesus is not being mocked and rejected. He's, re- he's rejected by everyone. But even that's not the worst. That's not the worst part of it, is it? The worst part of it is that on the cross, he's not only being rejected by the ones he came into the world to save, right? He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Not only is he being rejected by the people he came into the world to, 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 to rescue, he's being rejected by his father, His father looks on him and utterly rejects him, forsakes him, abandons him. And listen, when you put all these things together, Jesus exposed, judged, rejected, what you see is Christ bearing all of your shame. Every single bit of it. All of it. If we're going to put ourselves in this passage, it has to be among those mocking voices, doesn't it? That Jesus is rejected by everyone in this passage tells us that had, had you been standing in the crowd, you would have been right there along, mocking with them, jeering, sneering, snickering, the whole thing. That's what we're going to sing this in a minute. In a minute, we're going to sing, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. We're going to put ourselves there in this passage. It's there with the mocking. He's completely rejected. And the wonder of the gospel is that Jesus disregarded all that shame. He, 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 he listen, he disregarded it. He, it was such a small thing compared to the joy that was coming for him that he was willing, he volunteered, he was willing to endure all of it. Look at verse 23. It says, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. It's a little detail Mark includes to show you the willingness of Jesus to take on all your shame. Do you you know what 
myrrh is? The Romans, it was customary for, for those that were being crucified, they would give them this drink, which was cheap Roman wine mixed with like a drug, essentially. And the drug was meant to dull your senses, right? So that you can more easily endure the pain of the cross. But it was, it was meant not only to dull like your physical senses, it was meant to actually like dull your consciousness, right? So there's Jesus and he chooses. The Romans say, here you go. If he takes this drink, right, not only will the physical pain be diminished, but so will all the emotional, psychological pain. He'll, he'll, be, he'll be floating in and out of consciousness. He will, in, in, in some sense, be able to sort of retreat and hide in himself. But here's Jesus voluntarily taking on, choosing to experience the full measure of shame. They say, look, here's this drink. It'll make, it'll dull, it'll numb you. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to experience every ounce of shame that is put on me. You see? He takes it all willingly. But there's another component to that reality that, that, that Jesus endured the cross, despising and shame. First is this disregard for it. It's such a small thing to him. He's willing to endure. He's willing to endure all of it. But then there's another word, that, that is another idea that's wrapped up into this word despise. And it's, it's the idea of disdain or scorn, right? That he despised the shame. He, disdain, he hated it. He, hate, he scorned it. The, the, the NIV translates it this way. All right, so in the, in the New Living Translation, he disregarded the shame. In the New International Version, he scorned the shame. That's how they translate it. And, and they're both right, right? They each have two pieces of the puzzle. So what does it mean that Jesus scorned the shame? It, it literally, he, dis, he hated it. He hated the shame. Do you hate, listen, do you hate the experience of shame? You don't hate it as much as Jesus does. He hated it. At the center of what Jesus is doing at the cross is the reality that, listen, the, the word, do you know what the word scorn means? It's, scorn means to ridicule or to mock. So you, listen to the, this is the little word play that's going on here in Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is literally saying, Jesus is putting shame to shame. In him despising the shame, it's like he's saying Jesus mocked the mockery. He rejected the rejection. He put shame to shame. That's what's happening on the cross. It's precisely through his suffering that he is accomplishing your salvation, right? To the onlookers, right? To those seeing Jesus crucified, it was the greatest of failures. That's what the whole battalion of soldiers and the, and the, the, the chief priests and the scribes are mocking him. He said he was the Christ. He said he would raise the temple in three days. Look at him now. He can't even get himself down off the cross. He's a phony. He's a failure. He's a fake. He's a loser. But the, but the, the, the wonder of the gospel is that it is precisely through Jesus' suffering and death that he is accomplishing his greatest victory, your salvation. This, this is what the, the old theologians called the paradox of the gospel. The paradox. There, and this passage is filled with all these little ironies that give us a clue into what's actually happening at the cross. Let me list some of these off for you. These are, these are amazing. Verse 17 and 20. He's sarcastically clothed in a purple cloak and then stripped naked and hung on a cross. You want to know why? Because on the cross, he's clothed in your sin so that you can be clothed in his righteousness. You see the paradox? You see the irony? Verse 17, the soldiers press down on him a crown of thorns. Do you see what's happening there? Do you know what the symbol of the curse is in Genesis 3? What, what, is, what does God say to Adam because of his sin? Cursed will the ground be because of you. It will only bring forth thorns and thistles. And do you see what's happening now? The symbol of the curse is being pressed down on Jesus' forehead. Why is he taking upon himself the crown of the curse? So that you can have the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory. Do you see the paradox? Verse 18 and 20, he's mocked and insulted and demeaned by men so that you could be praised and commended and exalted over by God. Amen? 
Verse 22, the passage tells us that he was brought to Golgotha, the place of a skull, the place of death. Why? So that he could bring you to the place of eternal life. Verse 23, he refused the wine that would dull not only the physical pain of crucifixion, but the emotional, spiritual, and psychological pain of rejection and humiliation. Why? So that he could offer you the wine of the new covenant, which, but, but by which you know the eternal welcome and embrace of God. You see? Verse 27, he was condemned a blasphemer, crucified alongside guilty criminals and judged under the wrath of God so that you could be declared innocent and pardoned. You see, that they, they, they mocked him and insulted him. Verse 31, they say, he saved others, he cannot save himself. But it is precisely because, listen, it is precisely because he refuses to save himself that he has become the sufficient savior who is able to save you to the uttermost. You see? Look, he was mocked so you could be delighted in. He was stripped naked so that you could be clothed in his righteousness. He was ridiculed so you could be comforted. He was struck so you could be healed, spat on so you could be sung over. He was rejected so that you could be welcomed, despised so you could be treasured by God, hated so you could be cherished, abandoned so that you would never be left alone, forsaken so that you could be adopted, cast out so that you could be brought in. He was alienated so that you could be included, condemned so that you could be pardoned, judged so you could be accepted, punished so you could be rewarded, cursed so that you could be blessed, reviled so you could be commended, exposed so that you could be covered, killed so that you could have life, humiliated so that you could be adored, crushed so that you could be built up. He was destroyed so that you could be made new, broken so that you could be fixed, and ruined so that you could be restored. He was put to absolute shame so you could hear again your heavenly Father rejoicing over you with gladness and singing over you with loud songs of exaltation. You see, in all these ways, Jesus puts shame to shame. Amen? Guilt tells you you've done something wrong. Shame tells you you are something wrong. And sin tells you that both of those things are true about you. But God's grace to you in Christ says the exact opposite. It says your sins have been forgiven. Your guilt has been removed. Your shame has been put to shame. And in Christ you are absolutely loved and cherished and welcomed and approved of and accepted. Not because of anything you've done, but because of God's grace to you in Christ Jesus. Because in Christ now he sees you with the very righteousness of his son. Hebrews says he endured the cross despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. Do you know what that joy is? Do you know what the joy that was set before him was? It was the joy of accomplishing your salvation to the glory of God. That's what the joy was. It was the joy of receiving all that God had promised him in the completion of his saving work. A heritage, a people, a church, you. And so for all those who will put their faith in Christ and find in him the warm welcome and joy-filled approval of God, shame is absolutely destroyed. In Christ, not only is there no judgment for you, but there is no shame. There's no shame. Jesus has taken your shame so that you can live by God's grace with the joy-filled confidence. Brothers and sisters, the joy-filled confidence. I long, per me, I long for my family, for this church, to live in the joy-filled confidence of knowing that God is absolutely delighted in you as his child because of Christ Jesus. And that nothing will ever change that. On the cross, he put shame to shame. 
And because Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, we can now live in the reality of shame defeated. Real quick, let me just show you what this means for you. Okay, I've shown you shame defined and described, and and I've shown you Jesus despising that shame and conquering it. And now let me show you what it looks like to live a life with shame utterly defeated. I won't linger too long here, but let me just show you this real quick. Number one, so it means three things. First, it means you don't have to hide from God. It means you don't have to hide from God. That's what we see in Genesis 3, right? Confronted with their sin, they run away. They hide. Even now, as you are confronted with your sin, the gospel in Christ says to you, don't run away from him, but run to him with boldness and confidence. Believe that? Don't run away from him. Run to, don't run away ashamed. Run to him with boldness and confidence. Do you believe that? Paul tells the Ephesians that in Christ Jesus, we have bold, boldness, uh, bold access with confidence through our faith in him. As Christians, when we sin, we don't hide ourselves. We don't sow for ourselves little fig leaves, but we fly to our heavenly father for forgiveness and grace to help, knowing he's removed all of our shame and delights to receive us as his own children. You don't have to hide from God. Look, when you're brothers and sisters, when you're confronted with your sin, you don't have to hide from him. You get to run to him with bold confidence that he sees you and receives you and welcomes you as his child. That means you don't have to hide from God. It also means you don't have to hide from each other. You don't have to hide from each other. Underneath all of your insecurities, all of your defensiveness, all of your spiritual and religious posturing and all your fear of what people think of you is is shame. But in Christ, your shame is removed. When you let the, listen, when you let the reality of God's steadfast love and his absolute delight in you wash over your soul, all of a sudden, it doesn't matter if people see your failures, if people see your weaknesses or your sins, because you know that you have the acceptance and the approval of the one whose opinion matters most. Right? You have the God of the universe looking upon you, saying, I love you, I delight in you as my child. Will, will you get all tweaked because someone looks at you funny? Or because you're, 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 you're a little you know, weakness or failure is exposed? You see what this enables you to do? It enables you to stop pretending around each other all the time. Right? I, I, I so long to, to more and more be, be a community, to be an expression of the kingdom of God where we don't have to pretend around each other. Right? Where the masks come off, all the pretense goes away, and we get to just be ourselves in Christ. Because we know the opinion of the one who matters the most, we, we have his acceptance, we have his approval. We don't have to clamor for each other to, 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 to give one another approval. It means you don't have to be consumed with past hurts or the shame of a traumatic relationship because God sees all those hurts and pledges himself to you in faithfulness. Listen, it means you don't have to be crushed within, I'm, I'm talking to the, to the American part of us here, okay? You don't have to be crushed with insecurity when you gain a little weight. You have to be crushed with insecurity when you don't measure up to like the beauty standards because God looks at you and says, you're an absolute beauty and delight to me. It means you can confess sin to each other because your identity is built on the grace of God to you in Christ, not on what other people think of you. You see? Because the church is where God's grace destroys all shame. The church is where you get to live in real, transparent, committed relationships with your brothers and sisters, naked and unashamed. Don't make that weird. I'm just you get you get to you get to be Genesis two. You get to live with one another, naked and unashamed. Here's who I am. Call for what it. I by by the grace of God, I am what I am, and live in the joyful confidence of God's delight in you. So it means you don't have to hide from God. It means you don't have to hide from each other. And it means you don't have to hide from the world. Paul begins his epistle to the Romans by saying, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Why does he put his finger on this issue of shame when it comes to our proclamation of the gospel? Because underneath our fear of man and all our insecurities about what people will think of us when we bring up Jesus is shame. 
But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. His whole identity was wrapped up in and founded on God's power to save you and rescue him and reconcile him to himself. And despite all the the ridicule and the suffering, think of Paul's life, right? The ridicule, the suffering, the imprisonment, the humiliation, the embarrassment. Paul continued to preach the gospel without shame because, well, this, this is how he puts it to Timothy in, first, uh, in 2 Timothy 1.12. He says, but I am not ashamed. Listen, listen, I love this. He says, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. For I am, I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. When you're no longer controlled by what other people think of you because you know what God thinks of you in Christ, you're free to live and to love and to speak with bold confidence the truth of the gospel to anyone that will listen. Brothers and sisters, he endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. He put shame to shame in the certain hope of the joy that would be his accomplishment of your salvation, that you would be accepted and brought in and reconciled to God. So listen, live in the joyful confidence of his steadfast love for you in Christ. Abide in his love. Abide in the confidence and the joy of knowing that he absolutely delights in you in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have in Christ removed all our shame. Shame from sins we have committed. We look back in our own lives and and are embarrassed and humiliated by things we have done, even recently. We thank you that you take away our shame. But not only that shame from the sins we've done, but shame that has come from ways in which we've been sinned against, ways in which we've been dehumanized and and, and treated poorly and and made to feel unworthy. We thank you that you look upon us and bestow worth on us in Christ, that, that that you restore us and renew us. You make us new creations and, and, and restore in us the image of God. Lord, we thank you that you love us, that in Christ our shame is God and that we can run to you with bold confidence, trusting that you will receive us and accept us and that even now you look on us with approval and delight and that you sing over us with loud singing. Help us to live in the joy and the confidence of that and help us to live in such a way where we don't hide from you and we don't hide from one another and we don't hide from the world but that we're bold in our relationships with one another and bold in our proclamation of gospel to a world that needs it so desperately. Lord, do this in and amongst us for our joy and for the glory of your name, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.